Welcome to Grace Covenant Church, D.C. You're listening to our weekly sermon podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this message. The entire month, the emphasis for us as a people will be the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Those, those are coterminous. They mean the same. And we've just finished one series, uh, His Image. And we read a book called Ministry in the Image of God. And we talked about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the love that the Father has for the Son and the Holy Spirit, the love that the Son has for the Father and the Spirit, the love that the Spirit has for the Father and the Son, that this dance, as one theologian says, is what we've been invited to join. That God cherishes us. He loves us. And when we receive the love of God, uh, that love is made complete in us when we then give it to others. And God... um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the ruler of all, the world. And when he uh, rules, when he governs, uh, we refer to his rule, his government as his kingdom. So the kingdom of God refers to the rule of God, the reign of God, the government of God. And because he's the creator of all things, he has rightful rule over all things. Now, at the same time, he's also given us freedom of choice, which means our response to God really is from a heart of love. It's not something that he forces us into, right? Uh, Someone said, why does God allow certain things to happen? And um, I think it's uh, Ravi Zachariah who talks about the, the idea that if freedom of choice was something that we did not have, then love couldn't be love. So for love to be love, the highest form of of expression, you have to have freedom of choice. You have to. So that your heart toward God is your free will, your response to the grace and the mercy he pours out. And so I I want us to keep that heart of, it's really at the heart of God is his love for us, but he also is a God of rule and order. And... His authority and his government is, is not like the way of the world. The world is very wayward. And so our exercise of authority and our exercise of government is not like God's. Um, and the kingdom of God, the authority of God, you see it in, in, through, throughout history. Um, it's from eternity, but it runs throughout history. In the, both the Old and the New Testament of the Bible. Um, in the Old Testament, for example... Um, I want to start there. Most of our scriptures today will be taken from the New Testament. But I want to start in the Old Testament um, in the the book of Isaiah with reference to the kingdom of God. Um, I'll make a reference to Isaiah 6 and then I'm going to read something from Isaiah 9 and then we'll go to the New Testament. And it's all month, so I'm not in a rush. Whatever we don't get to today, we'll pick up. Um, Holy Spirit, help us to be those who enter into the kingdom and live in the kingdom of God. Live the life that the king has purchased for us. The life you yourself enjoy. Amen. In Isaiah 6, there's a moment where Isaiah, who 
becomes a prophet. He, he's a messenger for God. And God speaks to him, and then he communicates that word to that God that he hears. He communicates it to individuals. He communicates it to leaders. He communicates God's word to families, to nations, of what is on the heart of God. And in this particular moment, Isaiah has an image or a vision. Uh, and it's an eternal picture because the things he describes you don't see on earth. But we know he is in a throne room because he references throne. He talks about in the day that King Uzziah died, and Isaiah, uh, Uzziah was the king at that time. He said, when King Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. I think that's very important that the image that this man has of God is actually as a ruler. He doesn't use the word savior. He uses the word throne. We know that Jesus is savior, but he's also ruler. And that's really important because a lot of times, if you're like me, I grew up and I related to God out of a mindset of Jesus being savior, but not ruler. So I didn't live a life in submission to him, but I did live a life asking him to rescue me every time I messed up. But he was like a lifeguard. If I'm drowning, save me, but I don't owe you anything. I'm not, you know, I'm going to leave the pool and go home. Um, it's, it's totally different. You know, I, I was playing basketball with a guy. Uh, well, I played basketball with a lot of guys. If I go down that road, it'll be too long to get back. So it was a great story. Guy got saved. Um, but Isaiah... Isaiah sees him seated on a throne, high and exalted. So that's where Christ is. If you have a view of Jesus as Savior, that's awesome. But know just that he's not just Savior, he's also King. And relating to him as King is so important. Because that speaks to his dominion, his sovereignty, his authority, his government. And the absence of his authority in our lives leaves us lawless. And eventually reckless, wayward. So, in fact, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 10, where it talks about if you confess Jesus, it doesn't say if you confess him as Savior. It says if you confess him as Lord, which would refer, again, to authority, kingship, right? And that in the Roman era, Caesar was called Lord. So to call Jesus Lord was treason, which is why people didn't do it openly and publicly because if you say it here this morning, no one's going to arrest you. No one's going to imprison you. You're not going to lose your life for saying Jesus is Lord while riding Metro. You might annoy a few people. You might encourage some people. But no one's going to do harm to you, right? But in the day that Jesus is saying it, so when a centurion says, Lord, can you imagine a centurion who works for Rome? He... he <laughs> He's a Roman, he's not just a Roman citizen, he's Roman authority. And he calls Jesus Lord. That's why Luke says this is such a powerful story. Knowing the backdrop is really important. So he sees him, Isaiah sees him on the throne. And then it says, he's seated on the throne, highly exalted. And it says, and the train of his robe. And the only image I have is like a woman coming down the aisle with a robe or I got to go to, to Britain, uh, Europe to see, you know, the kings and monarchs when they wear these robes that just go on for like yards and yards and yards. And you know, the tailor who made that is sitting there going, yeah, that's my, you know, I don't know what their names were back then. You know, we have different names for people who make fine clothing today, but 
but only the royalty would wear purple in that day and things like that. So anyway, it says, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now that's imagery that he's using. The train of his robe filled the temple. So when you think about the train of his robe in Isaiah, I think it's 68 or so, it talks about how the one who descended, Jesus is the one who descended from heaven and came to earth, is also the one who ascended. And you got to go all the way back to King James, which some people still read, some don't. It says, and when he ascended, he took or led captive captivity in the train of his robe. So his robe is a picture of the thing when, his, when Christ died and he ascends, the authority has to bring us into the presence of God, into the throne room, into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, that we don't have access except that Jesus purchased with his own blood men and women for God, and he can bring us to him. It's a, it's a picture on the train of his robe. That's an amazing thing that you, Isaiah says something. Let's, let's hear this. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he talks about how the sound of the voices of these angelic beings going, holy, holy is the Lord, caused the shaking to go on. And Isaiah said of himself, woe is me, W-O-E, not W-H-O-A. <laughs> One is getting a horse to stop. The other is, I'm in a lot of trouble. He was saying, woe, W-O-E, I'm in a lot of trouble. Why did he say that? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. He calls him the king. My eyes have seen the king. He didn't say savior. My eyes have seen the king. And he realizes for the first time he's seen God in a way he had not. Remember, the king he related to was Uzziah, a man who died. But now he realizes the king of all kings is Jesus. And I realize that he's holy and I'm not. He's righteous and I'm not. He's pure and I'm not. He's perfect and I'm not. And he was disturbed inwardly by how unlike he is to Christ. And that's why he says, I'm ruined. So he's expecting sudden death. But here's what Jesus does with his authority. Brings us to himself. His love and his, he has the authority and the power and his love is to actually embrace us. That's so powerful because on earth you don't usually see authority and love working that well. You usually see fear and authority working. On your jobs, people who lead you sometimes are filled with fear, but they have authority and they rule over you, but you don't experience love. But with Christ, it isn't that way. Long-winded. Let's go to Isaiah 9. Did that make any sense at all? Yes. All right. How many have heard this before? For to us, this is Isaiah 9, chapter 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Raise your hand if you've heard that. All right, we hear it a lot. This is now the same Isaiah speaking prophetically about Jesus Christ. He says, for to us, a child is born. That speaks of the humanity of Jesus. He's fully man. Then he says, to us a son is given. That speaks to Jesus' deity. He is fully God and fully man. A child is born. For Jesus to be born, he, the Emmanuel, God with us, that's the humanity of Jesus. He's fully man. But a son is given. He's the son of God. So he's not 
part man, part God. He was born and became fully God, fully man. And it's a mystery. He goes on and says more though. He says, and the government will be on his shoulders. So Jesus is the one that says the government or the authority is on his shoulders, right? Not only that, it says he will be called, and this is what you experience when you encounter Christ, wonderful. Like he's wonderful, isn't he? Does anybody in the room experience him in a way where you can say, man, he's wonderful. I've experienced his, 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 this wonder. Counselor, when you have all good counsel comes from God. All good counsel. You ever had bad counsel and acted on it and regretted it? God's never, he is the counselor. Wisdom is found in a multitude of counselors, provided that those counselors are connected to the only wise God. And so there's, there's something that happens when you experience counsel from God. You start making great decisions. You make less bad ones. You're like, man, the counsel of God is good. When my kids were little, I used to say life has four doors. The door of counsel, the door of correction, the door of circumstances, and the door of calamity. Choose counsel. Choose counsel. In other words, don't be wise in your own eyes. If you're the only person who you will listen to, you're wise in your own eyes. And you, it, you, you're in, it's like driving a car and trusting all the mirrors. You got blind spots. I, I told my wife this week, I said, I don't want to be an old man who can't listen to anybody. I know what I know and I'm right. <laughs> I hope I listen more as I get older. We all think we're right. Just admit to yourself you're not. We don't have it all. So I'm, I'm, I'm becoming a better listener, I hope, I pray. Marianne, thank you. That's the true test right there. I mean, uh, thank God there's hope. Everybody say there's hope for me. There's hope. Men, listen. <laughs> Women, listen. <laughs> There's hope. I'm starting to listen to my kids. <laughs> Daddy, you're just a kid. No, I don't do that much. They, 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 There's truth that comes out of your kids. Yes. He's wonderful counsel. He's mighty God. How many experience the might of God? I mean, how do you think the children of Israel felt when God just parted the Red Sea? What a mighty God we serve. How many have experienced his might? Man, the, in, in Psalms 24, it says, the Lord, mighty in battle. He actually arms with battle. Like, there's no foe who does not tremble when he walks forward. I mean, I've watched all the movies, Avengers and all that stuff. But let me just tell you, it wouldn't be a three-hour movie with Jesus. He would just step up and go, over. And it's done. He'd just speak a word, and it's done. Do you realize that when Lucifer stepped to Jesus... Jesus did not get off the throne. The son looked at the father. The father looked at the spirit. They said, we knew it would happen, didn't we? Yeah, we knew it would happen before we made him. <clears throat> and then he said to one of the angels, Michael, handle him. So the images of, you know, a devil on this side. Like Jesus is not sweating Satan. We're like, oh, the devil. Like, but he got kicked out of heaven. I mean, he's not that bad. He got handled. Then he came to earth and God told Adam, handle him. We didn't. So Jesus said, 
Because the battle was lost on terra firma, earth, and lost by man, it has to be won by man. So let's execute our plan. I will become a man. So when Jesus is walking the earth and Satan is right there trying to tempt him, he's like, you got thrown out of heaven. Now I have to come down here and deal with you myself. And he wants to train us how to live a kingdom life so that we rule over all that is ruling over us. But if you're not in the kingdom, then you're being ruled by the way the world lives. So you can't do good to haters. You, you, you can't bless those who curse you out. You can't be insulted by your spouse and love them back. That's kingdom. To try to do that outside the kingdom is flesh on flesh. Flesh is the nature of man apart from God. Flesh is your nature without the spirit. It's a football that has no air in it. Still a football, but try to kick a field goal with it. Let's go on. He's everlasting father. Man, if we ever needed to know that he's everlasting father, this is who he is. For those of you who grew up without a dad, for those of you who grew up with a dad and this or that, whatever, for those who had a perfect dad, I'm just telling you, I've said this many times, Jesus was raised by good parents. Right? He had a good daddy who took care of him. But at 12, he said, I got to be in my father's house. And, and, and at that point, he understood what we have to learn too. Whatever the relationship with our natural father, the fullness of fathering is what is in him and is intended to flow through natural fathers who then represent it to their sons and their daughters, right? And I'm believing God that in this church and in the city that men will so inherit the father's heart that when people encounter us, it's like they're encountering God. Because we've got so much more of his heart. And we're not faulting the fathers before us who were less than because we ourselves are less than. But when a man or woman is fathered by God, you have one of the most secure people on the planet. Free. I cannot believe it's only five minutes left on the clock. We won't get to the New Testament today. (laughs) Prince of Peace. And this is the kind of peace that doesn't mean the absence of external problems. Or like you you don't have cancer anymore. The cancer is gone, now have peace. The way we think of peace is war has stopped. Disease has stopped. Um, Being beat up or fired, all that has stopped. That's not how he gives peace. The peace that he gives doesn't require anything outside to change. That's the kind of peace I want. Like turmoil is going on in the world, but we have peace because the Prince of Peace is enthroned on our hearts. Let's go on. Verse 7. Of the greatness of his government, one version says, of the increase of his government 
and peace, there will be no end. So they move together. As God's government increases in our life, so does his peace. When the the less of his rule, the less of his authority in my life, the less peace I have. It's like people want freedom and they want peace, but they also want to do what they want to do. Freedom is not doing what you want. That's actually bondage. Freedom is the ability to obey God and to live in the boundaries he's established and experience peace that comes from living in those boundaries. Right? I say this all the time. Athletes, D1 athletes, I work with some of them. They don't complain about the lines. They love the lines. It's where they do their best work. But somehow when we hear the commands, we kind of go, mm, how come I can't do this? How come I can't do this? You never hear an athlete going, how come I can't double dribble? How come I can't step on the line and it still count? How come I can't run out of bounds and run back in and still keep running the ball down the field? Like, like no athlete says that. In fact, when they run out, the whole team go, you out, you out, you out, you out. We all respect the lines. When you come to love the lines, see your flesh hates the lines, but the spirit loves the lines. Spirit is for living in the kingdom, flesh lives in the world. And every day you wake up feeling pulled. It's just who you're going to submit to. Three minutes. We're good. Thank you. Of the greatness of his government. And peace. We're still going to end on time. I would have heard that another way. I'm going for another hour then. Thank you. Not going to do that. Now watch this. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now this is really important. Jesus will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. This is why in the New Testament, there was an expectation of Jesus restoring the kingdom to Israel. <clears throat> That's a type of kingdom, but the kingdom of God is larger than just Israel. And the church and the kingdom are not synonymous. The church is in the kingdom. The church are those that Jesus has called out of darkness into the light or called out of the world into the kingdom. And when you come out of the world in the kingdom, you don't leave the world. You're now in the world, but no longer of it. What are you of? You're of the kingdom. So kingdom citizens are believers, the church, that's why it's not a building, who are living on earth, but not living from it. They're living from the kingdom while they're on earth. And that's how we become salt and light and stand out. But here's what he says. Jesus is the one who establishes and upholds the kingdom. And what does he do it? With justice and righteousness. So the very foundation of God's kingdom, of his throne, if you will, and it says it in Isaiah, it says it in Jeremiah, and Psalms and all the places, that justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. So since the kingdom has as its foundation justice and righteousness, for the world to be what it ought to be, which it can't be without the kingdom, it has to be just and right. Jesus came in the New Testament and he established the kingdom. And his way of leading as a king was that everything about him was right and just. Do you realize in your marriage and your family and your business and everything, how it goes will depend on whether you rule as one who foundationally has inherited the righteousness and the justice of God and the degree to which that righteousness and justice is in you can't be earned, but as a gift, 
You will rule in such a way that you're living in the kingdom and peace will be experienced and people will be drawn to God. Isn't that good? The reason why we see what we do in the world is because the world has, is wayward, gone away from God's way of rule. Instead of being self-giving, it's self-serving and self-seeking. Instead of being right and just, we're unrighteous and unjust. And that's all we, can, all we see in the world. Injustice over here, unrighteousness over here. But the moment someone is governed by the king and his kingdom, he then causes you not just to be born again, and we'll talk about this next week. Born again is just the doorway. When Nicodemus and Jesus had that conversation, he said, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter what? Right. Now, when Jimmy Carter, some of you don't even know who he is, he became president. He said, I'm a born again Christian. There was another guy named Sunday who preached about being born again. So at, at one point in our culture, everyone talked about being born again. And we made it it. You just need to be born again. But Jesus never made born again it. He said you need to be born by the Spirit in order to enter what is primary, the kingdom. Some of us just stay, stop right at being born again. But that's the doorway. The Spirit of God causes us to, enables us to become renewed so that we enter the kingdom. And the same Spirit then causes us to live in the kingdom. But when you only think about being born again as the end, then you enter but never live. It's like standing in the doorway of someone's house going, wow, I'm born again. Wow, I'm born again. Wow, I'm born again. Wow, I'm born again. You born again? I'm born again too. You born again? Wow, this is a great door. Let's just stand here at the door all day. Meanwhile, Jesus is like, are you ever going to come into what I have? I have a living room. Come on into the living room. No, I'm just going to stay here, born again. You must be born again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, I wish you could have heard the whole conversation between me and Nick. It wasn't for him to stay at the door. It was for him to come into a way of living. And many of us as Christians are at the door, but haven't learned how to live. So we're still struggling in our male-female relationships. We're still struggling in our job. We're still struggling. And then we do this. We try to resist the way of the world without the spirit by using our own flesh. Anybody like chocolate cake? (laughs) It's the first time I ever got an amen on chocolate cake. We'll pick up here next week. We'll pick up here next week. The chocolate cake. If you eat, if you eat three, four, yeah, please come on up. If you eat three, four pieces of chocolate cake a week, and then all of a sudden you feel like, you know, I'm eating too much chocolate cake. I shouldn't be eating all this chocolate cake. So you tell yourself, I'm not going to eat cake this week at all. And then you go to work, and they have a staff party. So you stand on the opposite side of the room, away from the table. You see that Costco chocolate cake. You turn your back to it. And then one of your coworkers walks up with ice cream and cake like, oh, this is so good. And everything in you is resisting. 
I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And what you realize in that moment is you're trying to change your behavior without there ever being a change of mind, of repentance, where I'm now in submission to the king and he's ruling over me so that my desires no longer do. That resistance that you try, I'm not going to have sex outside of marriage. I'm not going to cuss at people. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to, I'm not going to. Jesus didn't go through life going, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. He, he spent the majority of his energy saying, Holy Spirit, fill me, lead me. Holy Spirit, fill me, lead me. And when the Spirit of God fills you, just like an air in a football, you can live with a renewed mind and you'll still see cake but you don't have to have it. Your desire has changed. The flesh is still there but you're ruling over it. Imagine what happens when the Spirit of God causes you to rule over all your appetites and desires. You can be pleasing to God because you're living in the kingdom and we can be salt and light in the city that desperately needs God. Amen.
Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church or to watch video sermons, visit gracecovedc.org.